Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. There can be no greater service that we can do for mankind than to take away the suffering of children. That is the work that my guest on the podcast does for a living. In addition to that, he's one of the most incredibly creative doctors that I have had the honor to interview for this podcast. Here to spend time with us is Jared Rubenstein. Jared, I'm delighted to welcome you to this conversation. And I want to begin by acknowledging that you are in pediatric palliative care. Pediatric palliative care is possibly, to my mind, one of the most challenging of specialties because you're dealing with children at the end of life. Well, first of all, how did you come to do medicine and why did you choose that particular pathway? Thanks so much for having me. I've, I've really enjoyed listening to your podcast and it's, it's an honor to be on it. I'm, I took sort of a, a winding path to medicine. So growing up, my father is a pulmonary critical care doctor here in the States and my mom's a social worker. My father would talk about his work and, and really talk about it in terms of connecting with families and taking care of patients who were at the end of their lives. And I was scared of hospitals as a child and so never thought I would be a doctor. And growing up and going to college, I tried a few different things and nothing really fit and then sort of came back around to medicine. I think of sort of the stereotypical way a lot of people do by saying, I like science and I like working with people, so maybe I should try medicine. And once I ended up going to medical school and, and realizing it was the field for me, I thought back to those dinner table conversations and how my dad had talked about taking care of patients and supporting them who were near the end of their lives and just having really meaningful experiences helping support patients. Eventually realized that there was a whole field that was about that called palliative care. I did a palliative care rotation and then just loved it. That was that was the career for me and and just the ability to feel like I was doing something really impactful and worthwhile and getting to be a part of people's lives at a challenging time really resonated with me. And then after that, I did my pediatrics rotation and loved pediatrics and thought, you know, is, is pediatric palliative care a field? And it was a field in its earlier days then. And I didn't have any exposure to it in medical school or in residency, but was able to do an elective when I was a resident with the pediatric palliative care team and just loved it and realized, you know, that was that was something I was passionate about and loved medical education. And now I found a way into, I feel like I've lucked into the best possible job to be part of an amazing interdisciplinary pediatric palliative care team and have a fellowship and a, a residency elective and a medical elective. And we have trainees with us all the time that, that we get to work with. We just started a social work fellowship that we're incredibly proud of. And so the ability to support children and families through incredibly hard times while we're teaching other people and, and learning from each other how to do it, I, I can't imagine and doing anything else. I want to explore that a little bit more with you because what is it in particular about pediatric palliative care that is appealing to you as a career? Our goal is to have palliative care involved much more upstream than in the adult medical world. So while certainly a large part of my job is, is taking care of children who are near the end of their lives, our goal and, and vision and the way we practice is in palliative care, if, our, if what we're really about is improving quality and supporting children and families through serious illness, our hope would be to get involved from the point of diagnosis. And so whether it's children with cancer, whether it's children with severe neurologic impairment or underlying respiratory or cardiac diseases, our goal is, is to meet them and their families much more upstream at the end of their life. And, and our hope is that some of them won't reach the end of their life in childhood, either because their illness will be able to be cared for and, and provide 
life extension or because they'll they'll be able to be cured from their illness. And so for me, I think the appeal is that I have the privilege of getting to meet people sometimes on the worst day of their life, but often when they're going through something challenging and do everything I can with me and my team to try to make it better. And I think meeting people, some of their lowest points and and doing everything we can to try to make their life better, I, I find to be really impactful and, and really satisfying at the end of the day. There are both technical and other issues that relate to making that a less harrowing journey, both for the child and for the parents. For many of us who are in adult medicine and maybe are not involved in such a poignant point in the patient's life, do you have three hints about how you manage to achieve that for people who are at their lowest ebb? I think for me, one of the things that, that's always resonated with me, both from, from my encounters on the other side of healthcare as, as a, a patient and just and learning from all the amazing patient advocates and, and their families out there, is that you know the, the healthcare system can be really depersonalizing. And I think having that first meeting start from, so when I meet someone for the first time, I often tell them a little about palliative care first, because I know it can be mysterious or scary to some people. And if they haven't heard of it or, or don't know where I'm coming from, I think it lowers the temperature in the room a little bit for them to for them to get to know me and my team first and hear a little bit about us. But once that's done, I really want to get to know them. And and I often start before talking about their medical problem by really trying to to learn about them as a person or their child as a person. And so I'll say something like, you know, I've, I've read your chart. I know about all the medical stuff, but I'd like to learn about you as a person. Or one thing that's that's really stuck out with me that I've loved is Dr. Harvey Chachanoff in Canada, the creator of Dignity Therapy, has the, the one question dignity inventory or the, the, the patient dignity question that's something to the effect of, you know, what do I need to know about you as a person to be able to take the best care of you? And I find that to be a, a great way to connect with people and let them know that I actually, I want to know about their personhood. I want to know about who they are. Something I've started doing a lot for our patients who are, who are mostly children and oftentimes the encounters are with, or the initial conversations with the family is everyone has their phone on them all the time. So saying, you know, can I see some pictures or videos of your child or, and what's their life like at home? You know, I know I'm meeting them when they're not at their best. I'd like to see what they're like when, when they're home at their best and living their life and, and doing all the things that I don't get to see them do here. And I've found that that helps really connect with families. I think one, you know, everyone loves showing pictures of their children. And so I think it, it builds rapport that way. I think it helps with the satisfaction of my job to have a, a little reprieve in the day of getting to see nice pictures and videos of, of children at home when they're not sick. And then I think it's it's really helpful to learn about what somebody's like as a person and really what their what their natural baseline is, because oftentimes I'm meeting children who are not at their baseline when they're sick in the hospital and really getting to see that and and getting to learn about them. And I think if a picture is worth a thousand words, seeing a few videos of somebody at home living their life is worth. I can see how that would be helpful, seeing the child in a much happier place and understanding what their hopes are. But that must be very hard for you because you're then seeing that child in that happy place and then realizing that the future may not be as rosy. How do you look after yourself? How do you bring yourself to the point where you're able to be helpful to them without your feelings overruling your thinking self? I I do it in a few ways. Is that one, I think when I'm in a flow state and feeling like, you know, that's where I'm supposed to be at that moment and just really being in it and, and being part of that conversation and 
meeting them where they're at and, and using that as a starting point and both sort of looking to what their past was and then helping them look to their future and figure out, you know, how with whatever's going on in the setting of their illness, how can we how can we mobilize our resources and, and make things better for them in that moment? And to me, I find that so impactful and so satisfying that I, I think it helps. You know, I think that and I'm always convinced that burnout is some combination of, you know, the percent of your time that you feel doing that you're doing things that are impactful divided by the time you feel like you're doing things that are not impactful, like doing paperwork or, or writing notes or in this country dealing with insurance companies. And so I think part of it is just feeling like I get to I get to do work that that more often than not helps. And the second element for me for for that self-care piece is getting to do it as part of a team. I have the the luxury of being part of an incredible interdisciplinary team at work. So we have doctors, we have nurses, we have nurse practitioners, we have social workers, we have chaplains, we have grief specialists, we have fantastic research and administrative support. Um, we we just have a very robust team that that all works together and it's very, very rare I'm seeing a patient and family alone. Often I have one of our social workers or our chaplain with me. We do almost everything as a team. And so if we have a role to then, you know, they're knowing that I wasn't there alone and knowing that there was a group of us together, we could support each other. And so oftentimes after a particularly challenging encounter, before we go do anything else, we'll just sit and talk with each other for a few minutes and and give a chance to kind of process our feelings and emotions so that we can we we have a chance to put them out and, and be able to leave them on the field to some extent before we have to go do it again with somebody else. And then at the end of the day, oftentimes I'll stay in the office a little bit to talk to the other members of my team to be able to process the things we, we've done and seen and, and been part of that day so that I don't have to take it home. I don't have to talk about it as home at home as much is kind of the second part of the puzzle. And then having that, that, commute home in the car, whether I'm listening to a podcast or, or music or audiobook as that sort of space to be able to have the 20 or 30 minutes it takes me to get home to kind of put up that that divide between what I've done during the day and home. And then when I get home to my wonderful supportive wife and, and two wonderful children, being able to sort of be in that moment, there's a lot of terrible things in the world, but none of them are happening in this house at the moment. And doing everything I can to try to be sort of focused and, and present in the moment at home and, and be able to spend time with my family, both to be there for them, because I think they deserve me to be at my best and, and also to be able to kind of refill my cup and, and not think about the hospital for a little while before I go back and do it again the next day. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and mental health. I want to now pivot in the conversation to the other reason why we are having this conversation, which is to celebrate something that is quite special in your case, and that is your creativity and what you put out in the world in addition to your medical expertise. Do you want to talk a little bit about where that, well, first of all, what that creativity is? and where it might have come from. I think one of the things that I, I do that honestly for me I think is a big part of my self-care over the last few years and certainly during the pandemic was helpful is, is challenge some of my, my frustrations and passions about the healthcare system into animated, often satirical videos about topics in healthcare and sometimes outside of healthcare. Um, it's not something I ever really would have thought about doing years ago, and but I've always, you know, I've, I've always enjoyed having creative outlets. And I think I, I haven't been as good at, at harnessing them because it's something 
from that kind of side, and I haven't really had any formal ways to do it. But I've always loved, you know, my before I went into healthcare, my initial career aspiration was to be an advertiser, and I've always loved coming up with slogans or little jingles or thinking about, you know, how how to best pitch a topic or kind of sell an idea. And in in all of my role in healthcare, I've always gravitated towards the ability, whether when we're starting a new conference, you know, to think about branding and advertising or making the posters, you know, any way to sort of have some semblance of creativity um, has always really resonated with me. And I'm not a particularly tech savvy person or, or really have any animation background, but I remember, um, you know, seeing different ways people use those little animated apps to make videos about different topics in healthcare or other things. And I was coming back from a consult one day and had, I think, the experience that is common to a lot of us in palliative care where there, there's often a stigma among other healthcare workers and, and had had a conversation that went something to the effect of like, you know, yeah, of course, I think you can be helpful, but I don't want you to scare the family and maybe don't talk about any hard stuff, maybe just help them with pain and maybe don't say you're the palliative care team and maybe actually don't say palliative care at all and maybe think that's not palliative care. And it was just one of those conversations that I think anyone in my field has day in and day out because there's still, still that stigma. I just, I was walking back from this visit and had the thought, you know, it's sort of like if somebody in the fire department to a house fire, but said, you know, I think the family would be really scared if they saw the fire department show up to their house. So maybe don't say you're the fire department and maybe don't talk about fire, just see if you can go in and find another way to help them. And obviously it, it sounds sort of ludicrous when it's framed that way, but but it felt really resonant to, to my experience. And so I just found one of those little animation making apps and made a video about a fireman showing up to the house of someone and and somebody trying to message it the way that I think people often tell us we should be in palliative care and didn't really think much about it. And um, just showed this satirical one minute animation to some other members of my team. And people thought it was kind of funny and they said, oh, you know, maybe you, sh you should do something with it or put it out in the world. And, and I recently joined Twitter and after as being someone who's kind of social media averse, the case was made to me that it was a great space for for connection and colleague and finding new colleagues and, and talking about medical education and palliative care. And so sort of in my in my early days of learning about the platform had really had really grown on it and it had really grown on me. So I, I put the video out there and it went sort of palliative care viral. And I thought, oh, I guess other people have some of these similar frustrations and thought about doing anything else with it after that. And and then somebody reached out and said, oh, you know, I I love your video. I can't wait to see what you do next. And I said, oh, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to do anything next. I think it, I just made this video one day when I was frustrated. And then I thought about it some more. And I said, well, maybe I have, I can talk about in palliative care and started making these little one minute animated videos. And, and to date, I think there's something like 50 of them. And I, it started just palliative care videos, but then realized, you know, I think there's something about you know, I, I grew up on what like, was a generation that The Simpsons really resonated with and South Park and, you know, using using animation and cartoons and humor and satire, I think, can really get through to people in ways that maybe other things can. And so I thought, you know, maybe these little one minute satirical videos can talk about other hard topics. And I think it's something that I've realized my palliative care has helped and, and been really proud of the field and, and seeing other people in palliative care, you know, that are our, our ability and uh, to communicate can be helpful for non-serious illness conversations too. And I think one of the best things about making these little animations has been um, developed with, with people that are now lifelong friends and colleagues that I think I wouldn't have met otherwise. And so whether it's other palliative care doctors, whether it's citizen scientists and, and patient advocates partnering to make videos from the patient perspective. A good friend of mine, Liz Salmi, 
who I met through this work had convinced me that, you know, I thought I was making videos for patients about the patient perspective. And I wasn't because as a doctor, I didn't really know the patient perspective. In collaboration with her, have been able to, to do more and start thinking and, and talking more about the patient perspective in a way I couldn't before using some of the, the cartoon videos about issues of racism and diversity, equity, and inclusion in a way that as I'm, I'm learning more and becoming more passionate about that work, feeling like and partnering with some colleagues to do a spinoff that, that we call the anti-racism animation series and realizing we can, we can provide education on anti-racism and medicine through these videos, making some about mental health and the, and the stigmatization of mental health among healthcare workers and connections with colleagues to talk about gender equity and gender inequity in, in medicine, creative lens to helping people talk about hard topics and serious illness. I think we can talk about hard topics in anything. And I think it's, a, it's something I get more and more passionate about is using creativity and using communication to really help people lean into hard conversations of all types. Jared, I've watched some of these videos and they are frankly superb. I wanted to ask you, where do you get the time to develop them? Because clearly, I would imagine that your first attempts were nowhere near as polished as your subsequent uh, attempts. And therefore, you've taken the time to give yourself to develop the skill. Where did you find the time to do that? Some of it is just when I'm sitting around in the evenings and, and there's some kind of downtime, they look very professional, but it's just a little app on my phone. that I have no animation expertise. And it's really a user-friendly program that you can just kind of make characters and plug in dialogue and go from there. For me, it's become a big part of my self-care that, you know, if I can spend an hour or two and take a topic that I think is either important that I, I want to help people have a conversation about or if it's something that that I find frustrating, like some some of the, especially the palliative care ones have often been after I've had an encounter that's frustrated me and I, I and whether it was about the stigma of palliative care or something else in healthcare that I wish was better, being able, instead of just sort of stewing about it, being able to, to take that, that frustration energy and, and channel it into spending a couple hours to make one of these little videos, I, I find really satisfying. And for me, it, it's been a big part of my self-care over the last few years of feeling like, if I, if I have a frustration about something, if I can use creativity to, to kind of take it on in a satirical way and put it out in the world and then seeing other seeing that video help other people have conversations about it and starting conversations, I find really satisfying and, and, and really empowering. And it, it, it is part of me filling my cup and, and getting to channel that creative energy that I think we don't have a whole lot of opportunities for in healthcare. But I think there's so many of us that I think are creative people inherently and would want to be able to channel that and there historically haven't been really venues for it. I agree with you about the creativity question because in fact medical school doesn't tend to make a big deal of your ability to be creative. Often we talk about scientific expertise or very good at statistics or very good at an analysis of some sort but we do not think about the kind of creativity that you're describing, artistic creativity and the ability to express really complicated topics in a way that is digestible for others. No, I totally agree. And I think medicine historically and, and the culture of medicine, I think has taken people that were whole people and as part of that wholeness were, were creative and had creative outlets and, and kind of crushed it to some extent and, and said, you know, the most important thing is studying. The most important thing is, is learning physiology and histology. And sort of dashing some of people's wholeness. And it's been wonderful to see over the last years, you know, whether it's physicians that are, that are amazing writers or artists or musicians or people sort of bringing and highlighting and, 
and celebrating and their wholeness and each other's wholeness in a way that I think is is going to be wonderful for the field and and helping doctors become whole people again and celebrating the next generation of doctors to hopefully stay whole people and not have to not have to put away some of their wholeness to make it through medical school and residency I think is going to only be good for the field. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. I think we can agree that healthcare is broken and in many ways it does not respond to patients' needs, largely because we have taken the art out of medicine. It's now very technical. You, you have tests to make diagnosis. You don't sit and speak to the patient until the diagnosis becomes apparent. There's very little examination of patients. At and so what has happened is we are no longer part of the problem-solving mechanism, and yet there is a problem that needs to be solved in terms of the challenges that we face in healthcare. What's your perspective on that? I absolutely agree. I, I think the healthcare system in, is very broken. I know we're, we're practicing in, in very different healthcare systems that, that may be sort of uniquely broken in their own ways. But I think, like of all, all, the wonder things, all the wonderful things about medicine, I think the more we look deep into it, I think like a lot of things that once we look deeper, things that were part of the field in the past weren't great. And I think one of the things I find sort of most inspiring is that I think the, the next generation of people going to medical school and becoming doctors I think seem wonderful. And I think, you know, there's, I know there's been a lot of criticism about, you know, medical school topics are getting too far away from, from medicine and physiology and anatomy and like the really important things and terms like social determinants of health are becoming stigmatized. But I think the reality is that, you know, we, that's what we need to be talking about. And I think seeing doctors and each other as whole people, I think we need to see our patients as whole people and, and seeing where they live and where they've grown up and what their life experiences have been and, and whether trauma has been part of it or whether whatever disadvantages that have been part of it. I think seeing our patients as whole people is going to be crucial, whether it's the next generation having classes in medical school where I know that they talk about these things now and learn about these things in ways we never did, whether it's the next generation of, of people going to medical school that I think seem, whether they're talking about issues like social determinants of health, whether they're talking about issues of racism, whether they're talking about any number of topics, I think it's it's clear that that people coming into medicine now have are better at and have increased capacity for for discomfort and talking about things that historically were not fair game to be part of medical conversations. And I think the next generation of physicians increased capacity for discomfort and and, and talking about hard things, both within and sort of adjacent to medicine, I think is going to be hugely important for our field and, and really better it. And perhaps the other piece of that is the ability to communicate. You said that you wanted to be an advertiser before you went into medical school. And you were ideally placed, therefore, to bring that passion into medicine because so much of what we communicate is effectively trying to communicate something clearly so someone can make a choice that's right for them. Absolutely. Whether we're talking to each other about our fields and, and having sort of better, better collaboration between healthcare workers, whether we're supporting patients and families in talking to each other, I think nothing bad ever comes from, from talking and, and then listening. I, I think, you know, having, I think part of this, what we're not trained in also is, is listening. I think when they've studied, you know, how, how long doctors let patients talk, I think it's something like 17 seconds. And 
I think there's also data that, that surprised a lot of people that when doctors asked open-ended questions, everyone's fear would be that if you, if you ask open-ended questions and let people just talk, you're never going to be able to get to your next patient. And I think in fairness to doctors, doctors' time, at least in this country, are being squashed and, and crushed and, and made to fit into shorter and shorter visits. And I think what, what's been shown in, in a study was that if you let people talk and let them say what's important to them and what's on their minds and their hearts before, before cutting them short and asking what you want to know about, they feel heard and they get to say what's at the heart of their matter faster. And ultimately, that's what we want is we want to know people's hearts and minds and, and letting them talk and getting to that and really being there and listening, I think, is a skill that isn't taught enough. Jared Rubenstein, it has been a joy spending time with you. Your patients are extraordinarily lucky to have you leading the team that takes care of them through those difficult times in their lives. Please stay in touch. And we would love to celebrate all that you do. I'll include all the links on the show notes for this episode. And we wish you all the very best. Honor to be in conversation with you. And I'm a huge fan of your podcast. I love that you're helping have these conversations we're talking about and interviewing patients, interviewing doctors to really have that wholeness of the conversation to have all, all voices represented. And I, I think it's, it's such wonderful work. Thank you. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.